0: Good morning. So my name, if you don't know me, I think most of you do, is Jason Averill, and I am one of the pastors here at Grace, and uh, so today is a little bit of an odd Sunday. Last last Sunday, our senior pastor, Ryan, announced uh, his intention to resign and go into a, a counseling ministry with his wife, and so... You have me today. And uh, the next few weeks, we're going to be filling the pulpit with uh, myself, uh, Pastor Wilson, um, our campus minister at OSU, and also some uh, people from Pulpit Supply, some other ministers from around the state. Uh, So that's what you can expect over the next few weeks. Um, Now, if you've been with us, Since the spring, you'll know that we have been in a series on Ephesians. And so, we are still in that series right now. And we have turned a corner. So, Paul does this thing oftentimes in his letters where he will go through, at first, right belief. It's called orthodoxy. And he'll teach you what to believe. And then, after he teaches you what to believe, he'll turn a corner and he'll say, Now that you know what to believe, now that you know what is true, this is how you should behave. And so this is the turning point. We just heard last week this uh, awesome prayer from Paul as he ends out his his teaching on orthodoxy, what we should believe. And now he starts working out the implications of that in believers' lives. So, our passage today is Ephesians 4, it's verses 1 through 16. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we do thank you that you are so good and gracious to us. That you have called us here to worship you knowing that it's in worship that we have that reviving that we just sung about, that we have that spiritual life injected in us as we get to know our Savior better, as we are directed, as our eyes are directed to Him, and as our faith is built up. Thank you, Lord, that you have made a space for us to gather together as a people to worship you, We pray, Lord, that we worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus, we thank you for leading us in worship, for being our high priest, our prophet, our worship leader. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for showing us who the Father is and what he is like, so that the more that we behold of you, the more we behold of him. Holy Spirit, we do, we pray that you be active, active during this time, that you soften our hearts, that you change them, and that you build us up in our great and glorious Savior, Jesus. It is in his name we pray, amen. So. When I was starting out this journey to become a pastor, I took uh, a class on systematic theology. It was one of my first classes, and it was an undergrad class, and it was taught by a guy named Dr. Weeder, And he was a dear man. He was a Methodist fellow. Don't hold that against him. He's a great brother in Christ. And during one of the first classes that we had in systematics, he told us a story about a time uh, when he was about to get ordained so he was a young man he had just gone through all of his seminary training and he was waiting to get ordained and while he was waiting he was filling pulpit supply so there were churches around in Mississippi that didn't have pastors and they needed somebody to preach and so he was appointed by his regional board of directors to go and preach at these churches and He got the assignment one day, and he looked at the address, and he got his map, because this was like 50 years ago, way before GPS, when you actually had to look at maps, and he found the town that he was supposed to go to, and he drove to it. It was about an hour away, and when he got into town, he navigated his way, you know, I'm sure, you know, having a coffee, and, you know, looking at his map, and running people over, knowing him, Um, But he was navigating his way to the church, and he finally got on the right road, and he got almost to it, and then he noticed something weird. There were two churches. There was one church here and one church here, which in and of itself, that's not all that odd. Churches sometimes set up shop right across the street from one another. But what was really odd is that they both had the same name. We'll say River of Life. I don't remember exactly what the name was. And he thought, man, that's so weird. He, uh, this building was obviously newer, and this one was older. But he looked at his address, and he's like, okay, I'm supposed to go to this one. So he went in. He preached his sermon. And then afterward, he was kind of fellowshipping with the believers there. And he asked one gentleman, hey. I'd noticed that there's a church right across the street with the same name. Is that like another campus that you have? Or, or are you, you know, maybe intending on moving over there or, or what? And the guy said, just real quick, Dr. Weider prefaced this story by saying it was mostly true. <laughs> um, the guy said, well, that's the Bumblebee Church and dr weeder said that's weird <laughs> what's the bumblebee church well you see about 10 years ago the guy said a yellow jacket flew into the sanctuary and some people said it was a bumblebee and it was clearly a yellow jacket and we got to arguing and that arguing spawned other arguments And those arguments spawned other arguments. And then eventually, we couldn't fellowship together. We couldn't worship together. We couldn't stand to be in the same sanctuary with each other. And so, they moved across the street. Now, Dr. Weeder told us afterward that the division wasn't actually about a bumblebee. He didn't say what it was, but he said that it was a division that a lot of churches have... That is just as silly. And he used the illustration of the bumblebee. To draw out how silly it was. That they would have such an argument. And a disagreement. And separate the body of Christ. So in Ephesus. The church was kind of facing similar things. You know if you've been with us for the past few weeks. That in Ephesus there were two groups. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. And they were divided. They were completely divided. The Jews felt like they were the true children of God, and the Gentiles felt like they were the illegitimate children of God. Or sometimes they felt like they were actually the legitimate children of God. And the, the, the Jews had done, you know, they had put to death the Savior, and therefore declared themselves illegitimate. And there was a huge division in the church. And this was common in all of New Testament churches, actually, most of Paul's letters are address in some way the division that happens between Christians. In fact, in Colossians, he goes even further. He, he starts out by saying, this is Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. They were dividing in, Col- in Colossae over Everything. And he was hastening to reassure them, there are no divisions in our church. We are one in Christ. And I think with just a little bit of reflection, we can see that same pattern showing up in the church today. The church today divides over pretty much everything. Worship style is a big one where some people like a more modern worship, and some people only like to sing, you know, hymns, and some people only like to sing psalms, and then there are those strange people that don't even use instruments. And (laughs) thanks for laughing. It was important that you did. Um, (laughs) We divide over politics, where we wouldn't be caught dead if we're a republican with a filthy democrat being in our midst or if we're a democrat we wouldn't be caught dead with those backwards republicans worshiping in our midst theology even sports though to a lesser degree go folks so That's the problem that we're facing today. And it's the same problem that they were facing in Ephesus. And the real question that's coming to mind is, how is it, since we are united in Christ, how is it that we find that unity? How is it that we live in that unity? That's what we're going to be looking at today. So please stand as we read our scripture passage. As I said... The passage is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit Now, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Thus far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass, and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But not God's word. It stands forever. Amen. Let's turn our attention to it. You may be seated. So today we'll look at three things from the passage. We'll look at, well, one overarching theme, kind of what is the body? But we're going to look at three things about the body. We're going to be looking at unity in the body. We're going to be looking at diversity in the body. And we're going to be looking at maturity in the body. So unity, diversity and maturity. And each of those things that I've listed, if we're honest with each other, honest with ourselves, these are things that we actually crave. We crave unity, we crave diversity, and we also crave maturity. So, let's look at unity. Unity, I said it's something that we crave, it is, it's something that we long for. We long to belong. We long to have a people of our own. We long to be with our people. And this is exactly what Paul has been teaching us over the past 3 chapters that we have. We made the point last time that if you're a Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are bound both to Christ and to each other. You do have a union And that is real, and as a fact, even if you don't see it, even if you don't feel it, that is what is true of you. And Paul recognizes that though this is true, not everybody's going to act like it is. And in fact, in Ephesus, not everyone is acting like it is. Instead, they're quarreling with each other. So, the question is, what do we do about that? Starting in verse one again, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So to walk, we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, but how do I make my actions fit my calling, Paul? How do, how do I do that? With all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we ask ourselves, how is it that we can have unity together, particularly if we have real hurts between each other? If I feel like another believer has some animosity toward me, or if I am deeply offended by another believer... How is it that we can actually draw together? And Paul says, first off, with humility. Now, why would he point out humility? There's a quote that we'll read that's on the the front of your worship guide. Um, It's seeking to kind of explain a little bit what humility is. And... It's from C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, so kind of a lightweight Christian. Take him with a grain of salt. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of a greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably, all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And so therein lies the essence of humility. As it's summarized very popularly, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. And why is this important? Well, for starters, if you have divisions between you and another believer, it's more than likely because you think you're right and they're wrong. And so, you count their opinion as more worthy of your own, perhaps. You act in humility. For me, I'm always, always convinced that I'm right. Every time, every argument, every debate, I'm the one that's right. And so for me, often humility looks like me saying, Jason, you do think you're right. Maybe you are. But know this, you are often wrong. Yeah, my wife's giving me a look. That's great. (laughs) And so, that's the mindset that we have when we approach other believers. We approach them with humility. So, the next one is gentleness. The opposite of gentleness is harshness. So what is gentleness? Gentleness is using exactly the amount of strength that's required to do the task needed. You're gentle with a two-year-old when you pick him up because you know that if you're harsh when you pick him up, that you could actually hurt him. And the same is true when you're interacting with other believers, you don't Use more force, you don't use more power than is necessary because by doing so, you can actually harm another believer. And you don't want to do that because all that's going to do is leave them broken and feeling like they're worthless. And the next is patience. Patience is hard. And this is, all of these are godly attributes, all of these are attributes of Christ. Patience is one of the, the refrains throughout the Old Testament, that God is patient. In fact, he's, he says that he's long-suffering. In the Hebrew, it translates from an idiom of long of nose, which is just a weird idiom. But the image is this, that God's, whenever people get angry, their, their face flushes and their nose flushes and usually the tip of their nose is the last to turn red and for God to be long of nose it means that it takes an awful lot to get him truly steamed and so we're patient, patient with each other following after our great savior following after Christ and that we're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace that is, that you put Christian fellowship first, that in, in fact, if you have a disagreement, that disagreement always has to come into play, or what comes into play in your resolution of that disagreement is seeking Christian unity, not seeking to be right. Not seeking yourself, but seeking the body and wholeness of the body. You come together with unity as the goal. Because unity is actually what we have, and we need to live out what we have. So, what do we mean by unity then, Paul? I mean, we hear that an awful lot in these sermons. What do we mean by unity? Starting in verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So what is unity? It's unity in, there's one body, there are not multiple bodies. Okay, so there's not not a Presbyterian body. There's not a Methodist body. There's not a Lutheran body. These are not all different bodies of Christ. There's one, one body. Why is that? Why is there one body? Because there is one spirit. And because people are grafted into the body because they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, because they have the spirit of Christ dwelling in their hearts, that's why they're part of the body not because they affiliate with a church. More than that, there's one hope, one faith, one baptism. Why is that? Because there is one Lord, there is one Jesus Christ, one person that we place our hope in. There's one faith that we have through Christ and it's all the same faith. There are not there isn't my faith, your faith, his faith, John's faith. No. One faith. And it's the faith that we have in Christ put there by the Holy Spirit. And finally, there's one God and Father. What does it mean that God is the Father? That he's one Father. It means that there's one family. It means that every believer has been adopted into one singular family. But the interesting thing here is that when Paul answers this question as to what is unity, how does he answer it? He answers it trinitarianly. Trinity actually means three in one. And so. He answers that there is one God and Father, and therefore one family of believers. He answers that there is one Lord, and because there is one Lord Jesus, there is one hope, one faith, one baptism, and because there is one Spirit, there is one body, and we are all one. So... That is what our unity is. It's the unity that we have in this body that we call the church. And like I said at the beginning, this is all something that we long for. We all long to belong. But as much as we long to belong, as much as we long for unity, we also long, if if you're honest with yourself, for distinctness, for individuality. You long for diversity. You don't want everyone to be the same because you don't want to be the same as everybody else. And that's good because in fact we have a unity. We have a whole bunch of disparate people that have been welded into one body. We don't have uniformity. We don't have carbon copies of every person, of one person in everybody. And so we long to belong. We also long for diversity. And so diversity itself is built into the image of the body. Paul kind of draws this out in other letters, uh, specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18 through 20. There's a lot more verses that you could read there if you just back up a little bit, but this kind of puts the... The capstone on it but as it is God arranged the members of the body each one of them as he chose if all were a single member where would the body be as it is there are many parts yet one body in that same paragraph he makes reference to the body being made up of all sorts of different parts and of course we see that in in ourselves that we have a head we have eyes we have a mouth They all serve a different function. And we have a diversity within the body of Christ. Starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, we're going to skip the parenthetical for now and skip down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He starts out by saying that each of us have been given gifts that Christ has given each one of us gifts and that he did that when he ascended. Now, we, we see very, very clearly from a biblical perspective that that happened when the Holy Spirit came down upon us. Each gift is given to an individual believer. Each gift is different. And to be used in a different context... And then Paul focuses in on the gift of leaders in the church. It's kind of an odd transition maybe, but leadership is one of the gifts that Christ has given. And he says that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And he gave them to the church. Now, why? Why did he give them to the church? Well, commonly, we, we, nowadays, we have this misconception, this misapprehension of what the role of the pastor is, what the role of the elder is, and what the role of the saints, the laity, everyone else is. And we tend to think, I th- probably because um, of our kind of corporate world, but I'd have to delve into that a lot more to be sure. We kind of think that the pastors and the elders, that they're the ones who do ministry. And they do. And we think that the laity receives ministry. And they do. But we kind of end there most of the time. And that's our thought. But Paul says no. In fact, the pastors and elders are given to you the shepherds and teachers are given to you why they're given to equip the Saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ and so the pastors and teachers the shepherds and elders they're given to the church so that they can minister to you so that you can then minister to each other. The work of ministry doesn't stop at the pulpit. The work of ministry carries on throughout all of your interactions as you build each other up in the body of Christ. So, how is it then that you minister to people? How is it, what gifting do you have that can minister to a fellow believer? Just be thinking on that as as you go about your week, as you as you think about this passage. How is it that you minister to other people? And how is it that you, through your ministry, actually build up the body of Christ? How is God using you in that? But what is the goal? Okay, so we have a unity, and in that unity, we have diversity. And that diversity is used for the building up of the body of Christ. What is the goal of that building up? Starting in 13 again. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, and there's that word again, unity. The purpose of our building each other up is so that we can achieve the unity of faith so that we can achieve the fullness of the knowledge of the Son of God. It's so that we can achieve maturity. And so we have unity in the body, which is very diverse, and the diversity of the body is for building up the unity of believers. Isn't that beautiful? That God himself uses our differences, uses our idiosyncrasies, uses anything that could be actually used to divide us. He instead uses them to build us up. And to let us know who Christ is in a fuller and grander way. He uses our diversity to pull us together instead of to pull us apart. So, what does it mean that we're to build to maturity? What does it mean to be mature? So, starting in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. No longer children. But wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought that we were supposed to have a childlike faith. I thought we were supposed to be like children. Well, yes, you are supposed to have a childlike faith. What does that mean? It means you trust God, you trust Christ in the same way that a child trusts their parents when their parents tell them something. That's how you trust God. How is it then that we are no longer children? Why is that the goal? Because children are trusting and they are gullible. And they can be led astray very, very easily And so we are to grow so that we will no longer be children, so we can't be led astray. This means, for instance, that we are to know our doctrine. I know people groan whenever they hear pastors talking about knowing doctrine, but it's super important that you do know it. Because if you don't know it, you're very easily led astray you know theology, you know your Bible, that you read it. So there, there's a common analogy that, you know, you hear pastors say again, and I'm going to repeat it, you know, shamelessly. Um, and that's that whenever you try to train a banker on how to spot counterfeit money, how do you do it? You have them study the real thing, Yeah. You don't have them study counterfeit notes. You don't have them study all the ways that they can go wrong. You have them study the real things so that they know what a one dollar bill looks like. They know what a hundred dollar bill looks like. And they can spot any deviation from that. And that's how they identify counterfeit bills. And that is how you identify counterfeit doctrine. It's how you identify wrong theology. It's how you identify somebody trying to lead you astray. Because it doesn't match up with what you know. And how do you know that? Because you are no longer like a child. Because you have grown up in the faith. You have become mature. And you see, all of these things, you know, we like to think about false doctrine. We like to think about, you know, bad theology. We, we like to think about all of these threats as coming from outside the church, but Paul's talking to the church. He's not talking to people outside of it. He's not talking about people outside of it trying to infiltrate. He is talking about people in the church who are saying the wrong things, believing the wrong things. And we will face these challenges even in our church, even in this local body, because not everybody understands proper theology, not everyone understands what they need to believe, not everybody is a mature Christian. And so when we have incidences like that, what are we to do? We can spot the counterfeit, but Paul doesn't stop there. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And so, our response is not a rebuke whenever we hear things, but a gentle correction. It's speaking the truth in love. Brother, sister, I care for you. I love you. This thing that you just espoused is going to destroy you if you keep following it. That's speaking the truth in love. And what's the purpose? Starting in verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The end goal of maturity is so that we can build each other up in love. It's so that we can show each other different pictures of Christ. We talked about last time how Christ is so big and the love of Christ is so big that when you have the unity of believers, you still can't encapsulate all of it. But everybody has a different perspective, and that comes into play here, that we use our gifting, we use our knowledge of Christ, how we know him, to show him to other people so that they will know him and see him like that as well. So so what? So I understand Jason that you know we have this unity and that I should be working toward it. I understand that it's good that we have a diverse body and that that helps build the unity, but like this seems really hard. How can I do that? How is it that I can actually have the power and energy to serve, to minister to people, to build the body of Christ? How is it that I can even be humble? How is it that I could even be patient and long-suffering when people are so irritating? Thank you for laughing. That's, I, I will always thank you for laughing. That's great. Um, let's go back. To that parenthetical. So, in the midst of this unity and diversity message, Paul takes this weird aside and he says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. What is Paul directing us to? Paul is directing our our eyes to the fact that Jesus came to earth, that he descended, that he lived a perfect life so that he could have a perfect record of righteousness, so that he could give you his perfect record of righteousness. He died the death on the cross so that he could take your sad, broken, sinful record upon himself and atone for it. And then he ascended into heaven. And there are two senses in which he ascended into heaven. One, he ascended like the people in the Old Testament ascended to the temple as they went, leading their people in praise. And then there's the sense in which he ascended the throne. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul is directing your eyes right there to the entirety of the gospel. And why is that important? Why is it important that the gospel be the controlling vision for all of this? It's because how can you be prideful? How can you be arrogant if you know that Christ had to come to earth to die for you? That you were broken enough that Christ had to take your sin away from you. How can you be arrogant and prideful? No, the more you look at Jesus, the more you see him, the more humble you'll be. How can you be harsh with your brother? How can you be cruel to your sister when you see what Christ has done for you? How gentle he has interacted with you How, how can you be impatient? When you are looking at Jesus and you are looking at his finished work for you and you see the patience of God stretching out through every moment of your life, every sin that you've committed, how is it that you can be impatient? No, the more you see of Christ, the more those first three characteristics that we talked about. Humility, gentleness, patience. The more they will permeate your life, and the more they permeate your life, the more you'll be walking in accord with your calling. The more unified you will be. So, practical things. As we end Everybody likes homework except me, Um, but no, some people legitimately do like homework and there are some practical things that you can do. First off, read the Bible, because if you don't know what it says you can be led astray very easily. Learn theology and doctrine, memorize the catechisms, there's a great catechism song out there if you actually want to do that. I do recommend it even though it's kind of intense because they're just so rich and they can guide your life forever if you do that. Be on guard for anything in you disrupting the unity around you. So to push the analogy of the body just a little bit further, okay, there's a certain condition that the body can get into. It's called an autoimmune condition or we develop an autoimmune disease and it's where part of the body, the immune system, looks at another part of the body as a threat and they attack it. Parts of the body are not the threat. That response is against a threat. It's not against your believer. Be aware and on guard for that. Be aware and on guard for demanding uniformity instead of unity. People don't have to look like you. That's what cancer is. At its heart, cancer is one type of cell that is just replicating and replicating and replicating and creates tumors. And then spreads out through the entire body and then kills it. And uniformity isn't what's required. Diversity is to be celebrated. Because diversity means that people are showing you a picture of Jesus that you haven't seen before. Be on guard for any attacks against the diversity in the body. And ultimately... Sing praises to him. Sing praises to him with your fellow believers. Come to worship. Go to Bible studies. Be plugged into the body, because the more plugged in you are, the more plugged in you are, the more unified you'll become, and that's just a fact. Amen. Let's pray. Father before creation, you formed a covenant with your son, covenant of redemption and you knew Father all of the people, all of the people that would be your children, all of the people who would be in the body of of Christ, and you made a way to claim us as your own. Lord, help us draw together and celebrate the fact that we are one people, that we are a kingdom of priests forged together by the love of Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit and sent forth into the world. To show the world your son. Help us celebrate that every day. Jesus, we do thank you that you did not come for one lost sheep. You did not come for three. You came for a whole herd. You came to make us into one family calling us brothers and sisters. Keep that alive in us, Holy Spirit. And keep our eyes directed upon our great and glorious Savior, Jesus. Amen.